Good morning, everyone. It's lovely to see you. Can I just uh, add to the welcome Will has already extended, especially if you're visiting. It's great to have you uh, with us. And also, of course, a warm welcome to those who are are joining uh, the live stream. Um, Friends, before we turn back to that portion of Scripture that we read a moment ago in Matthew's Gospel, uh, let's turn to our God in prayer and let's ask God for help this morning. Let's pray. Lord, we uh, say so quickly and so frequently that your word is living and active and sharper than a two-edged sword. But Lord, this is our understanding. Uh, You have revealed this to us, that truly your word is living, that it uh, changes lives, that you reveal yourself through your word by your Holy Spirit. And so we come with a, uh, indeed a sense of expectation this morning, not that we might hear ideas from men, but Lord, we come with a sense of humble anticipation as we approach your throne that you this morning through your chosen means might address your chosen people in your chosen way. And we ask, Lord God, that this might indeed be so. Lord, we pray that you would do mighty things. And we pray that as we wrestle with this genealogy at the the start of the, the book of Matthew, that you might please help us to understand, but more that you might help us to love and to love you, to love the Lord Jesus Christ, the one who is our Lord and our Savior. And we pray in Jesus' name, for his name's sake. Amen. Many years ago, many, many years ago, um, I remember preaching in a church in a a different part of the country, and I remember being absolutely bamboozled uh, at the door of the church, Uh, completely bamboozled. You know how it is in some churches, certainly pre-COVID, after the service, what tends to happen, but the minister will go to the door and he will greet everybody as they are leaving the church. So this is what I did at this church in a different part of the country. And I lost count very quickly of how many people, as they left that church, they said exactly the same thing to me. So I went to the door, trying to be polite, and everybody was filing out of the church, and everybody was shaking my hand in the times that you could do that. And as they filed out, they would say, thank you for the service. Good morning. Thank you for the service. And then they would say one after the other, and who are your people? Thank you for the service. And who are your people? Now, at first, I'll be honest with you, I'm pretty slow on the uptake. So at first, I was just a little bit confused about what exactly I was being asked at that moment. But thanks to my trusty interpreter, Uh, I was able to work it out. You probably know exactly what this was. This was a West Highland way of asking me about my family heritage, wasn't it? Who are your people? Who are your people? A way of inquiring really whether this strange man who was preaching to them, whether he had any roots in the Western Highlands. Who are your people? 
Who are your people? Well, just as lineage clearly still matters to many of us today in Scotland, so I think we have to appreciate this morning that the same was true to many, many Jews in the ancient world. So in first century Palestine, many Jews were able to trace their family line and they were able to trace their family line back generation after generation after generation, something that they loved, something that they cherished and valued deeply. And does that not already help us to understand what it is that we've got in front of us here? Because what is this this morning? This is Matthew's gospel, isn't it? So this is a gospel primarily written to who? To Jews, Jewish readership. And so do you see how fitting it is? Do you see? What better way to begin this gospel than Matthew confronting a people who are intrigued by lineage and he confronts them immediately with the genealogy, the lineage of the Lord Jesus Christ. This is a most fitting beginning to a book, to the gospel. But how are we this morning, how are we going to approach Matthew chapter uh, one. Well, this morning, really, what I want us to do is really to explore this section of Scripture under just the two headings. You know what us Presbyterian ministers are like. Usually, we're hitting three headings time and again, not this morning. We're going to consider just the two headings. So first, I want us to think about what this genealogy tells us about Jesus' identity. So it's really the question, Who is Jesus? That's the first thing about Jesus' identity. Then the second heading, a little bit later on, I want us to think about what this genealogy tells us about Jesus' mission. So you can see that, can you? First question really is, well, who is this Jesus? What do we learn here? The second question is more, well, what has this Jesus come to do? And how does this genealogy shed light on that mission? Everybody with me? So what does this genealogy teach us about Jesus' identity, but what does it teach us about Jesus' mission? So I would ask you the same thing as I ask you every service. If you've got a copy of the Bible, please have it open at Matthew chapter 1. Matthew chapter 1. We all fell for our session clerk, didn't we, earlier on. We were all in awe of David's and coming up and reading that flawlessly. But let's have it open in front of you. If you're visiting and you don't have a copy of Scripture, either on your phone, uh, what we'll do is we'll try and put some of the verses uh, up on the screens later on. But let's first of all think about what this genealogy tells you and me about Jesus' identity, who Jesus is. Now, um, I think you would agree with me that this section is one of those instances in the Bible where even just a cursory glance at the text, bird's eye view of the text, it reveals to you, doesn't it, actually quite an obvious structure. If you look down, do you see that there's an obvious structure here? Let me point it out if you you don't see it. So you've got, what you've got is this title, an introductory verse in verse one, don't we? We've got this opening verse. Then do you notice that there are three sections of genealogy Let me point out to you, if you look at it in your Bible, so verse 2 to 6. So you've got Abraham through to David. Then, 
Look at it. From verse 6 to 11, you've got David to the exile. That's the second section. And then the third section, do you notice it's verse 11 to verse 16? And that goes from the exile to Jesus. And then what do you have? In verse 17, then you have a concluding verse. Everybody get it? So an introductory verse, three sections of genealogy, and then a concluding verse. Well, this is what I want us to do. Because it contains so many of the themes that recur throughout the genealogy, I want you and I just to grasp verse 1. I want us to take this introductory verse as really our launch pad under this head. I'm really going to try and pick apart verse 1. Okay, so what's our question again? What was it? It is, who is this Jesus? Well, look at verse 1. What's the first thing we see in verse 1? What's the first thing you see in verse 1? Who is this Jesus? Matthew tells you that Jesus is the Christ, doesn't he? The anointed one. The Messiah of God. Now, you and I are really, really familiar uh, with that term, aren't we? The Christ. And so I think what could happen this morning is that you and I utterly fail to grasp how exciting this opening phrase would have been. To the, to the early, to the first readership of this gospel. I mean, you can see it maybe, can't you? You know, at the time of Jesus' birth, the time of the incarnation, there was just so much anticipation and speculation about the coming of the Messiah. Like for centuries, the Jews had been anticipating this deliverer that was going to come from God and he was going to rescue the Jews. And at the time of Jesus' birth, you know, first century Palestine, you see that anticipation? It was just boiling over this expectation, this region, fever pitch. And so you can see it now, can't you? You can see what Matthew is doing as he not only begins, but do you notice he ends the genealogy with mention of Christ. Do you see what he's doing? He's showing his readership that Jesus of Nazareth was that long-awaited deliverer. So Matthew's presenting Jesus as such. He is showing these Jews, showing his readership that, that actually Jesus was the one that all of Israel's eschatological hope should be centered on, pinned around, centered on, focused on. I wonder if you're new to the church. I wonder if you're joining even online this morning and you're just tuning in, merely interested in Christianity. Just hold on to what God has already shown you in Matthew's gospel. Are you interested to know who is this Jesus? We'll understand it from Matthew 1. This Jesus is the one sent by God to deliver his people and to deliver them from all of their sin. Who is he? He's the Christ. He is the Messiah of God. But if you and I go back to verse 1, we're picking it apart, aren't we? We see that Jesus is the Christ. What else do you notice? Can you, can you notice with me how Matthew ends verse 1? What is the, the other term? Do you notice? How does he end verse 1? We also see that Jesus is the son of Abraham. <laughs> the son of Abraham. Um, 
it's surely not just me that has a question about that. Jesus is the son of Abraham. If you're writing the lineage of Jesus and you're starting it, why do you not begin with Adam? Why? Am I the only one asking this? Maybe I am. I don't think so, though, surely not. Why, why begin with Abraham? Why not begin with Adam? Well, if we know our uh, biblical history, perhaps we know the answer in the room, do we? Who was Abraham, friends? Come on, who was Abraham? But the initial recipient of the promises of God, the covenant of grace. And, and what do those promises look like? We can remember, can't we? The promise of land, the promise of a nation. But wait, there was a promise that through an offspring of Abraham, God was going to bring blessing to all of the nations of the world. So maybe now we can see what Matthew is doing by focusing on Abraham. What is he doing? He's revealing that Jesus of Nazareth is that one. Jesus is the, Jesus is the one in whom all of the promises of God are going to find their yes and amen. Matthew's showing that Jesus of Nazareth is the one through whom God is actually going to bring blessing and is bringing blessing to all of the nations of the world. Isn't it staggering? Like, we are not out of verse 1 in Matthew's gospel. Not out of verse 1 in the New Testament. And already God is showing us what? That Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of Adam. Jesus is the anointed deliverer. And he is also the covenant fulfiller. Isn't it marvelous already? That if you're alert this morning, if you're alert, you'll have noticed that uh, your minister has uh, omitted a detail from verse one, haven't I? Maybe if you look back, you'll see it. There's a third emphasis, isn't there? Jesus is the Christ. Jesus is the son of Adam. But in between those, sandwiched in between there, we have the reality that Jesus is the son of David. Son of David. Now, um, can I ask you, friends, do you like modern art? Do you like modern art? Do you like modern painting? Do you? Uh, whether you do or not, I'm sure you know how a lot of uh, modern painting works. A lot of modern art has uh, hidden depth, doesn't it? It's hidden intricacy, hidden meaning. What sometimes to us, depending on what the art form is like, might just look like a few lines on a page. But if we study that and we delve into it, then it's revealed to us there's actually hidden depth and hidden meaning. Well, I want to suggest to you, in a sense, that the same is true here in Matthew 1. You see, although it might not be obvious to us, just now on first reading, I want to suggest the following to you. Please hear it. Please get it. Although it might not be obvious in first reading. I want to suggest that this idea, Jesus as the son of David, so Jesus as the royal successor, I want to suggest to you that that is the predominant theme this whole section of the Bible. Does everybody get that? Is everybody with me? So you hear it? Jesus as the son of David. So Jesus, this idea, Jesus is the royal successor, that this is the number one theme in this whole genealogy. That's quite a big, bold claim uh, for me to make. Can we back it up? How, how do we see that that theme is predominant here? I wonder if you'll stick with me 
as I mention a few things here. So what's the idea of Jesus as royal successor? Well, first, just consider how that structure of the genealogy, how it brings it out. Can we remember what we said? How does the genealogy flow? Do you remember what we said? It flows from Abraham to David. Flows then from David to the exile, to the deportation. Do you see how King David plays such a central role in the structure? And then can I ask you all a favor? Would you look at verse 6 with me? Try and find verse 6. And notice what happens here in verse 6. Have you got the verse? Do you notice how Matthew breaks away from the normal formula of this genealogy? What was the normal formula? It's A is the father of B, and B is the father of C, and so it goes on, isn't it? We got that when David read it out. But not in verse 6. Do you see it? You see, Matthew says, now, Jesse is the father of David. And then what does Matthew do? He presses on the neon lights, doesn't he? It's like, uh, Jesse is the father of David, and then it's just flashing at you, isn't it? And it's, David is the father of Jesse, the king! He's the, the king! But then, I think you and I have to get our hands dirty, And you and I have to try and wrestle with this rather peculiar ending uh, to this genealogy, don't we? So um, I tell you what, let's bring it up on the screen. Can we get it up? Right, have a wee skim of verse 17. Whether you've got a Bible in front of you or not, now you have no excuse. Uh, Have a look, verse 17. What do you see? Do you see all the mentions of 14? Do you notice it? So the, what is that? All the generations from Abraham to David were 14. David to the exile, 14, 14, 14, 14, 14. What on earth is going on there? Well, there's been all rafts of so many different suggestions made. All I want to do is to give you what I personally find the most convincing or compelling. So I think what's happening here in verse 17 is that Matthew is using a Jewish device it's called gematria. Have we heard of this? Sounds kind of fancy, doesn't it? It's really straightforward. It was the device where Jews would assign numeric value to letters in the Hebrew alphabet. Does everybody get it? Everybody get the idea? See, the young people in here definitely can get the idea, I'm sure. We can get it assigning numeric value to letters in the Hebrew alphabet. So Z is... 14 or 15, S is 6, or do you see? You get the idea? Numeric value associated well. Why? What's the question we're asking? But why 14? Why 14? Well, if you add up this famous, well-used device, if you add up the numeric values in the name David, have a guess what number you get. 14. And if you count to find the 14th name in the genealogy of the Lord Jesus Christ, anyone want to guess what name you find? It's number 14. The name David. Everything in the structure here seems to be pointing in the same way. Kingship. Kingship. King David. But then, I'll be honest with you, last year, we have to deal with a bit of a problem. You can bring that, that, that screen down. We've got to deal with a problem. Now, it's, a, it's a, probably quite a common problem, but listen to it. 
probably know about it, but here's the reality. It's the issue that the genealogy that you've got in front of you is very, very different to the genealogy of Jesus that you find in the book of Luke. They're different. I wonder if we can bring that up just to prove it. I'll not make everyone turn to it. This is Luke's genealogy. So maybe you've got Matthew's in front of you. This is some of Luke's one. Do you you see how entirely, it's just so different. Like the names are different. It's it's bearing so little resemblance. You can see how it's a problem. So, So how do we resolve this? These are different. Well, traditionally, this has been resolved away, or people have tried to resolve it by suggesting that where Matthew is drawing Jesus' line through Joseph, that what Luke is doing here is drawing Jesus' line through, Luke, uh, through Mary. That, did I say that right? There's a lot of names there. Did we get it? So Matthew is drawing the line through Joseph, where Luke is drawing the line through Mary, and that's what accounts for the difference. That's what a lot of people say. There's a big problem with that. That is not what Luke says he's doing at all. He mentions Joseph. And so this is what I think we're dealing with. And surely it's interesting that where Luke is drawing the line through Joseph, that actually what you've got in your hands, what Matthew is doing, is drawing the line of royal succession. That's what Matthew 1 is. So Luke is drawing the line, the family line through Joseph, but actually Matthew, he's drawing the legal ancestry, the line of royal succession. Do you see it when we think about Matthew 1? Like on first reading, doesn't jump out at us, but everything in Matthew chapter 1, everything seems to be screaming to us of the same reality. What is that reality? Matthew screaming at us that Jesus of Nazareth is King David's greater son. That Jesus of Nazareth is the one who fulfills all of the promises that were made to David in 2 Samuel 7. Who's Jesus of Nazareth? He is the one whose reign will endure forever and ever and ever as king. Who is Jesus of Nazareth? He is the one whose reign will result in the eternal praises of God. He is the king. And amongst so many, so many realities this morning, I think personally that truth should alter how you and how, I, how we approach Christmas this year. Because you know what we are like, don't you, when it comes to Christmas? Oh, if you're anything like me, you get to Boxing Day, or even sometimes Christmas afternoon, you get to Boxing Day, or you get the 27th, and you look back, and as a Christian, there's a twinge of regret. Isn't that how we are with Christmas? You all know that sort of, that come down that happens after Christmas. You know how the world looks different on Boxing Day to the way that it looked before? It looks different on the 27th. And what can happen as a Christian? You get to that, you get to the 27th, you look back over the preceding weeks and you despair, don't you, of yet another year where we have become too entangled with the materialism and too entangled with the, the, the greed associated with this time of the year. There's that twinge of regret. But look what's happening this morning. This morning, we're, as we begin this run-up, this long run-up to Christmas, 
Are we not afforded an opportunity? Do you see what God is doing in his word here this morning? He is confronting you again, Christian friend, with the identity of your Savior. He's showing you anew this morning who this Jesus is and who is he? God's saying he's the Christ, the son of Abraham. He's saying he's the son of David. Jesus is the king of kings. And should that not alter the next few weeks? Should that not mean that you and I ensure that we make this season a season of homage, a season where we praise the son of David? Do we not go into this build up to Christmas? And do we not make sure that we praise the one who reigns in the kingdom of God? Because after all, why would we rejoice at Christmas? Like really, if you strip away a lot of the superficial things, get rid of the tree and the mince pies as much as we might not want to do it, and you get rid of the family time, you get rid of the presents, get rid of the tinsel, get rid of the songs, get rid of the whole... Why, why is this such a beautiful time for the, for the church of God? What's the answer? What does Isaiah say? Isaiah 9, we rejoice for to us a child is born. To us, a son is given, and what is his role? What are we seeing today? Who is this child, the son, and the government? That's right. The rule of all things is on his shoulders. Who is this Jesus? Who is he? But he is the king of kings, the son of David. So we've seen what this genealogy tells us about Jesus' identity. Secondly, And more briefly, we consider what this genealogy tells us about Jesus' mission. So have you ever seen the TV program, Who Do You Think You Are? Does that ring any bells with with you good people this morning? Who do you think you are? Uh, If you have not seen this program, it is, I think, a BBC show uh, where, let's face it, minor celebrities, uh, they take their turn in tracing their family history. That's a sort of broad idea. Maybe it's ringing bells with some of you. I quite like that TV program. Not a big TV person, but I quite like that TV program. Probably says a lot about my twisted nature, though, I think. Because you, I like it because it kind of goes wrong a lot of the time. Uh, You know what the celebrities are hoping for, don't you? They are hoping that the research will reveal that they are descended from aristocracy or something like that. And very often the opposite happens, doesn't it? And the research reveals, well, actually, you know, you're descended from this network of criminals or something like that. Who do you think you are? Well, in a sense, I think we have to come to terms and wrestle with, we, we have something similar before us. Because isn't it staggering to, to think what this is? That this is a lineage of, of, who is it? Of the Son of God. Now, in, in paper before you, you have the lineage of the God-man, the lineage, the genealogy of the prince, the Lord of glory. And so what might we expect? We might expect that lineage, given who Christ is, this lineage is going to be filled with the 
greatest people in all of human history. We might expect that, right? The most upstanding and righteous and godly people who have ever lived are going to fill this genealogy. We might expect that. And the truth is, anything but. I want us to consider that in two ways. I think, first of all, more broadly. So I would ask that we look at the center bit of, of this genealogy, this middle section. Can you scan that for me? This will test your knowledge of Kings and Chronicles, I think. Does it a little bit? I wonder if any names jump out to you. Now, remember what we've just said. This is the genealogy of the Lord of glory. And who do we have here? Look at this. Let's go for verse 7. We've got Abijah. Do we remember him? The son of Rehoboam. I think it's 1 Kings 15. This is a man with a wicked heart. That's what the Bible tells us. The Bible tells us that it was a heart that was not fully devoted to God. It is a heart, it's a man who ruled with evil intent. In the, in the genealogy of Jesus. Then, then look on, look at verse 9. So you've got mentioned there Joram. Does that ring a bell with us, Joram? Joram was a man who was so corrupt, so corrupt that God inflicted Joram with an incurable disease from which he died. Again, I am saying to you, in the genealogy of Jesus Christ, and then maybe the name that has jumped out at you. Has it? Verse 10, Manasseh. Does that come on? We know Manasseh. Manasseh was the son of Hezekiah. We know Hezekiah, the one who made all of those godly reforms, don't we? What did Manasseh do? Not only did Manasseh undo the godly reforms, but Manasseh, he set up pagan altars. Listen, Manasseh sacrificed his own son. And the Bible tells us that Manasseh filled Jerusalem. Such was the slaughter. He filled Jerusalem with innocent blood. You're looking at this. The genealogy of Jesus Christ, and we are thinking, aren't we, this is some motley crew. Isn't it to have in your family history? These are some black sheep here. Now that is us, you and I, thinking about this broadly. But then I want us just to go a bit more particular, specific, and I need you and I to think about the women that are mentioned here. I'm going to be honest about things this morning. I'm a bit nervous. I'm always a bit nervous standing up the front as a, as a, as a bloke uh, in today's climate. I, in any way, having to talk about women. Uh, yes, it's, it's a nerve-wracking thing. I feel like I'm walking on eggshells as I do. I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to tread carefully this morning. Now, what's the reality? See, maybe you've researched your family history. Have you done that? If you or I research a family history and we uncover some notable women in our family history, what we're we going to do, we're going to take note of that and we're going to shout about it, are we? We're going to be proud of that reality. I think you have to appreciate that was absolutely not the case in the first century world. Women were not given a mention. And so we have to be clear about exactly who we're dealing with here. 
So can we put it up? Can we make sure that we have it? Now let's see. So in verses 3 to 6, I know it's difficult. There's a lot of names there, but we've actually got four women who are mentioned. And if you don't get them, I'll give them to you. We've got Tamar um, from Genesis 38. We've got Rahab. Please tell me that we remember Rahab from our studies in Joshua. We remember Rahab. We've got Ruth, uh, the the wife of Boaz, don't we? And then the last one we've got is Bathsheba, uh, who's mentioned here as the wife of Uriah. Let me give you those names again, and you think about the question that I've had to wrestle with all week, okay? So we've got Tamar, we've got Ruth, we've got Rahab, and we've got Bathsheba. What's the question that's been haunting me all week? Why those four? Right? I mean, there's so many women in the, in the line of Jesus. Why not the matriarch Sarah? Why isn't she highlighted? What about Rebecca? What about some of these women? Why is it those four women? Do you see the question? Is that a legitimate question for us to answer? Well, I want to close the sermon this morning simply by suggesting three reasons why it is that these four women are, are mentioned. You've stuck with me thus far. You will stick with me to the end. Why those four women? Why? First, could it be because of their ethnicity? Can, can, you, can you see? What holds those women together? What's their common ground? Bathsheba, she would have been regarded as a Hittite, wouldn't she? By her marriage to Uriah, the Hittite. What about Ruth? She's a Moabite-S, isn't she? Wait a minute, what about Rahab? What's peculiar about her? We know from Joshua she was a Canaanite. It was the same for Tamar. Like, could it, do you see? Could it be that Matthew highlights these women to underline a most critical truth. What is that? That in the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ, that the offer of the gospel is going to go out in a new and more explicit way to all people from all places right across the globe. Could that be the reason why these four women are mentioned? It's number one. Number two, three reasons. Second reason, stick with me. Could it be because of their sexual sin? You heard it correctly. Could these women be mentioned because of their sexual sin? Who do we have here? We've got Tamar, somebody who dressed as a prostitute, didn't she? Genesis 38. We've got Rahab, somebody who was a prostitute. We've got Ruth, Ruth, someone who is descended from the line of Moab. So that means that she is descended from that horrible moment, that dodgy moment between Lot and his daughters. And then you have, what was the last one? Bathsheba, somebody involved in an adulterous 
Could it be that Matthew is highlighting these four women to affirm something that he is going to make beautifully clear and explicit in verse 21? Does he highlight these four women so that we know that Jesus has come to save his people from what? From their sin. Do you see the message in highlighting these four women? It's that anybody, no matter how tarnished they are, no matter how scarred they are by sin, they can find forgiveness. They can find cleansing. This one, the King of Kings, the Son of David. There I said three. So maybe it's their ethnicity. Maybe it is their sexual sin. But thirdly, maybe Matthew highlights these four women because of their beautiful suitability at this moment in time. Because maybe it is this morning, you're one step ahead of me, are you? Could be you're two or three steps ahead of me this morning. Maybe you are. What else holds the women together? So they're women. Yep. What else? They're mothers. And all four are mothers whose children would have had hanging over them suspicions of illegitimacy aren't they can you not see it okay with 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 ruth but what about tamar with her father-in-law what about bathsheba and that that unconventional difficult pregnancy and then what about ruth we've got tamar we've got bathsheba What about Rahab as a prostitute? Each one of them, each one of them potentially embarrassing pregnancies, each one of them with suspicions of illegitimacy hanging over them. And then you see it, don't you? Doesn't it? Isn't it perfect? So Matthew highlights these women as they lead into the birth story of the Lord Jesus Christ. Matthew highlighting these four women, all of the suspicion around their pregnancy, just as he begins to talk about this special pregnancy, a pregnancy with full of suspicion over Mary, the mother of the Lord, a pregnancy embarrassing in a certain way, but a pregnancy that is going to lead to a birth, a unique birth like none other, a birth that produces the Lord Jesus Christ, not born of Joseph, no, but born of born of God. Now, yes, as we close for the Christians here today, surely there is, from this genealogy, a challenge, a challenge about how we should regard those perhaps who have got a checkered past and those who have got maybe even a checkered present. How it should be that we as the Christian church, we as the people of God, we should be the first to shun the idea that St. Peter's, that is a place just for those who regard themselves as respectable and upright. What absolute nonsense. But I want to close instead with a word for, for those who do not believe presently in the Lord Jesus Christ, either those in the room or those at home who are joining online. I just simply want to ask you, Does this seem a little bit familiar to you? As we look at this checkered lineage, this checkered genealogy, does it seem a little bit familiar? Like, can I ask, is there just a lot of mess in your life? 
Is it the case that your family is just full to the brim of black sheep? In your life, as there are lots of baggage in the past and lots of problems in the present, is everything just seeming a mess? Is there just everywhere you look in your life and in your family, is there just nothing but sin? Well, I would urge you to see what Matthew, in writing this genealogy, surely, desperately wants you to see. And if that's your situation this morning, you must understand that Jesus of Nazareth can be a savior for you. Please understand, Jesus was not born in Bethlehem to to come and live this righteous life, die on the cross and rise. And he he didn't come to do that for those who think of themselves as honorable. Like Jesus had not come for for those who think of themselves as, as good and morally upright and worthy. Jesus Christ, what does he say himself? He did not come to call the righteous. Who's he come for? He's come for people like you. He's come for people like me. Jesus had not come to call the righteous, but he had come to call sinners to repentance. If there is baggage, black sheep, a mess in your life, if you see nothing but sin, then this morning, see Jesus. Come to him. Come to him for rest. But praise God, you can this morning come to him and come to him for forgiveness. Friends, let's bow our heads and let's pray. Gracious Father, we thank you for this uh, genealogy. We thank you for this uh, list of names. We thank you for the way that it's put together. We thank you for the themes here. But we thank you for what it leads into, the coming of the Lord Jesus Christ. And we thank you that he, Jesus of Nazareth, truly is the Christ. He is the son of Abraham. And we praise you that Jesus is the son of David, the one who reigns today and the one who reigns forevermore. Lord God, may it be that his name is praised. Amen.